What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. From wherever you are around the world, around the world, welcome to the Circle of Insight, a show that explores the many facets of human behavior and the wonders of the human mind. And now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome, everybody. Well, today we have a great guest with us. It's Dr. Larry Young. He's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Emory University. And he's got this great book that I really enjoy called The Chemistry Between Us, Love, Sex, and the Science of Attraction. So I don't know about you, but this is always a great topic to talk about when it comes to love and attraction. And before we get started, just remember we have a show Monday through Friday, 12 p.m. Pacific time. If you want to support our show, hit that share and subscribe button. But let's go ahead and get started on the discussion of science and attraction. So welcome to the show, Dr. Young. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. This is really a popular topic. Everybody always wants to know about love and attraction. We're going to cover a lot of different areas. I also want to learn about decision-making and how love interferes with that. But before we get started on that, tell us a little bit about your journey uh, writing your book. Uh, yeah, so uh, I guess it started in college or even before that when I was a kid, uh, being interested in animals and uh, out in nature, you know, seeing all the animals behaving in the ways that they behave and knowing who to mate with and uh, this kind of instinctive behaviors. And, um, you know, as a graduate student and then as a young professor, I was interested in trying to understand the chemistry in the brain. How does that, that chemistry help? you know, guide animals to know how to behave in the way they do. And uh, that led me to work with these little prairie voles that I imagine we'll talk about, which are little rodents that uh, they form bonds just like people. They have a family life very much like our own. Uh, but the, the cool thing is that we can study them in the laboratory and understand how chemicals act in the brain to create those kinds of bonds. And over the years, I just realized that there was a lot of public interest in understanding how our body, you know, works to create emotions and things like love. You know, everybody experiences love and they want to know how it works. And so that was really the, the impetus for writing the book, you know, to try to translate this you know, real scientific knowledge of how the brain works to create these emotions uh, to where everybody could uh, understand it. I know we have a brief time together, so we're just going to hit the tip of the iceberg, folks. We're not going to cover everything in detail, but one of the very first hormones I wanted to talk about, um, which is really strong, especially for bonding, is oxytocin. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, oxytocin is really interesting. That's the molecule that's released in mothers when they get ready to give birth, and it's what causes the uterus contractions uh, during labor. And then after the baby is born, that same molecule is released from the brain, goes down to the breast to cause the a milk ejection so the baby can get milk. And this happens in animals and humans alike. But that same molecule we know is released in the mother's brain 
when that baby is nursing, when the mother is holding that baby and makes that mother think that baby is the most special baby in the world. And what we've learned, you know, since we've been working on these voles and with other animals now is that it's not just about mothers. Both males and females have oxytocin and it's released during intimate moments when we are making a connection with someone. And it's what makes our brain really pay attention to social cues, uh, the faces of others, uh, the smell, the voices of others. So it really helps us tune in to the other. And uh, when it mixes with other chemicals like dopamine, it can help like create a kind of addiction to another individual, which is basically what I think the essence of a, a bond is. And, um, you know, ultimately leads to love. I'm going to take you down the rabbit hole and Alice in Wonderland kind of moment here. <laughs> but what does it, does it have any kind of, do we have any kind of oxytocin reaction if we watch a movie, for instance, and we see an actor or an actress that we're attracted to, and we develop some kind of connection? Do you think we, do we release oxytocin at that moment? Well, probably with that attraction, it's more of a dopamine. You know, it's, it's like, it's sort of like, you know, you, you see a, 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 a nice piece of cake or something that's very rewarding, you know, you're attracted to it. That's more of the dopamine. It's the pleasure. Um, you know, dopamine is something that cocaine releases. So when things are exciting, that's dopamine. Uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe you're right. If you really do feel like you have a connection, you know, you sort of have a deep connection with someone, not just attraction, but wow, I, I really like this person. Maybe you watch this person day after day on different episodes and, uh, and you feel that connection, then maybe you do have a sort of a, a mixture of that dopamine and that oxytocin. So I guess what's fun. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, it's really that combination of the two that helps you, you know, associate that individual with that reward. And then that individual becomes rewarding. I guess I'm thinking of like friends, the old TV show. Remember that TV show from years ago, it was on for a decade. I mean, you, you almost feel like they're real people <laughs> besides yeah. the actual actors. But I just wonder if you can even bond to somebody like that. Yeah, I think you can. I mean, it's certainly there's different levels of bonding and a real person to person bond is way stronger. Uh, but, you know, in terms of oxytocin and bonding, you know, the, uh, we know that bonding to dogs, if you're bonded to your dog and when your dog looks at you in your eyes, you release oxytocin. And your dog releases oxytocin and that helps create that bond, you know, so it's not just, you know, mothers and babies and, and between lovers, but whenever you feel a connection with someone, uh, oxytocin seems to be involved in that some way. How about neurogenesis in the early stages of motherhood when they're holding their babies and they're looking at them and they're bonding with oxytocin? Does oxytocin play any role in neural development at all in the brain? You mean in terms of the baby or the mother? Of the baby or both, I guess. Oh, yeah. So we, we know that, uh, for example, we've done studies with uh, uh, voles that show that, you know, voles that they form these pair bonds that when they become adults and if they experience neglect, so their parents don't get to lick and groom them a lot as their pups, uh, when they grow up, they're not able to form bonds themselves uh, unless they have high levels of oxytocin receptors in certain parts of the brain. So uh, this suggests that that nurturing, that licking and grooming that the, the mothers give to these pups releases oxytocin and then helps shape that social brain so that later they can form healthy relationships. And it's interesting if you look at humans who experience really uh, extreme neglect, like uh, in orphanages, uh, 
uh, the Romanian orphans, for example, they don't get that attention. And then they have real problems relating to others later in life. So yeah, I think oxytocin does help shape your brain so that you can relate to others later in life. Fascinating stuff. And again, folks, this is Dr. Larry Young from Emory University. You can find his book, The Chemistry Between Us, Love, Sex, and the Science of Attraction. Just to give you an update tomorrow, we're going to have a paramedic who's going to join us tomorrow to tell us about the life of a paramedic during these times. And boy, it's an amazing time right now that we're living in. Back to Dr. Young. Uh, Dr. Young, what is some of the newest research? I know you wrote this book a few years back, but there's, I mean, there's a lot of research being done on love, oxytocin, dopamine, and whatnot. What stands out for you in, in the latest research? Well, I guess uh, there's a couple of answers to that. One is that there's been a lot of work now showing that it, the, 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 what we've learned from these little rodents, these voles, actually applies to humans. So, for example, in voles, we've learned that oxytocin and dopamine interact in this reward center called the nucleus accumbens to help the partner become really rewarding, like we become addicted to the partner. And there have been studies in humans that show that if you if men look at their partner and you give them intranasal oxytocin, it really activates these same reward centers, uh, but it doesn't activate those centers if those men look at other women. So it's not just about sexual attraction or whatnot. It, it really is that this oxytocin is helping this particular circuitry of the brain respond to your partner. Uh, so that's, that's one aspect, but uh, you know, neuroscience has gotten really, uh, highly developed and uh, sophisticated. And so now we can begin to uh, look at neural circuits at a much more sophisticated level and see how, how that flow of information about the partner in humans, that would be the face and the smell and the, the, the voice of the partner, how that information flows through the brain, through the amygdala, the hippocampus, and then to this reward area, this addiction area. Uh, we can actually see how that happens and how oxytocin influences that. So uh, we're really getting down to the nitty gritty of how the brain circuitry helps us form these bonds. Does it get stronger over time? In other words, if you're with the same person over years, does your oxytocin hit and get stronger? Is it a little bit desensitized? You know, the, the law of diminishing returns? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. It, so we know that relationships change and our feelings change when we're with our partner, you know, if you, when you first start a relationship, it's very exciting. You know, it's almost like being on drugs. You know, it's like you're, you're thinking about your partner. You can't get your mind off your partner. It's kind of like a cocaine high. And that's because of the richness of the dopamine and the oxytocin coming together. That's when your brain is really making the connections of, hey, this individual is rewarding. Uh, but what, once you've been together for 10 years, you know, that fades a little bit, but you still love the partner. And what we found is that uh, something changes in the brain so that it's actually when you're away from your partner, you feel a withdrawal, almost like a withdrawal from drugs. So you feel a negative effect being away from your partner and that drives you back to be with the partner. So we see this in these little rodents where if their partner is, is gone for several days, they become, they show signs of depression, uh, like, almost like grieving at their partner loss. And so, um, yeah, we think that these same kind of mechanisms may be happening in people. You know, and for, at first, there's very much excitement and we drive to be with the partner. But then later on, it's much more about the absence of the partner sort of gives you a lovesickness. And we can see those kinds of mechanisms in the brain. Yeah, kind of like cloud nine syndrome. Uh, folks, if you have any questions, make sure to please ask. We're more than happy to take your questions and we can ask Dr. Young. 
Dr. Young, this kind of leads me to my segue about decision-making. Uh, a lot of people have compared falling in love and all those things you just mentioned, right? That cocktail of, of chemicals that happens in your brain, and you kind of get this kind of diluted sense of reality. Um, does it impact our decision-making, you think? Yeah, I think it does. You know, uh, humans, our decisions are made, you know, partly by our elaborated cortex. You know, this is what makes us different from rodents and, you know, mice and other animals is that, you know, we have this complex cortex that we make rational decisions. We think about the future and make those decisions. But below that, we've got this part of the brain that is the same in most all animals. And these are areas that are involved in drive and reward, this pleasure and the striatum nucleus accumbens area that I was talking about. And when you're experiencing that love and attraction, uh, those areas kind of take over and they change our decision-making. So we may make decisions that are, you know, good for our, you know, uh, reproduction or whatever, you know, for forming relationships, uh, but may not be the best decisions, you know, rationally. So there's always this kind of conflict between your rational cortex, highly evolved cortex, and these subcortical ancient brain regions that are really trying to drive us to reproduce. What, I don't know if, you, if you've seen any research at all or anything done on regards to personality disorders. Like I'm thinking of like a dependent personality disorder or an antisocial personality disorder, two kind of extremes. <laughs> um, I don't know if oxytocin has been studied in regards to that at all. Just a little bit, not too much. For, for the uh, antisocial personality, you know, the people who lack empathy, uh, we know that in, you know, for, from both work in humans, but also in our little voles, that oxytocin is important for that empathy, for being able to detect the distress of another and then act upon that. These little voles, if their partner is distressed, they will go over and try to soothe their partner. But if we block the oxytocin receptors, they won't do it. Or if we knock out the receptors, they won't do it. Uh, so pretty sure that an antisocial personality, there's maybe some dysfunction in the oxytocin receptor system. Uh, for the other kind of personality disorders, it's a little bit uh, less clear. You know, when someone becomes very highly attached to someone and, you know, they really dependent on relationships. Um, yeah, we're not, we're not sure yet what's going on, whether the oxytocin system is involved in that or not. Yeah, it's interesting because I know I've seen studies in the past where if you, you know, if the waiter or waitress comes by and, and they give you the check and they touch you, uh, the amount of tip goes up. I guess there's some kind of level of bonding. So I guess my question from there is, is there a certain amount of time? Is it instantaneous? How does that work to be able to release that oxytocin so quickly? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And there's there's uh, work been done uh, recently uh again, in, in rodents that shows that social touch is really important for releasing oxytocin. So if you're just stroking an animal on their back, like an animal would receive grooving, grooming, the, you can put a camera into the brain and watch those oxytocin neurons, they start lighting up like a Christmas tree. And so, uh, you know, um, that reminded me about you know, politicians, really effective politicians. Oftentimes they won't just shake your hand, but they'll reach out, shake your hand and maybe touch your elbow or touch your arm, your forearm. You know, Bill Clinton was known for that. And that kind of extra touch, sort of mimicking grooming that would happen, actually does cause these oxytocin neurons to fire. And that would happen in this uh, your situation with the waitress. And maybe that's not enough to create bonding, okay? So bonding could take much longer. 
but it does activate those neurons. And then your brain becomes listening or, you know, paying attention to the social world around you. And that person, you know, is, is the subject of, of your brain at that, at that moment. So uh, yeah, the little things like that can um, really affect how we perceive our environment and our social environment. That's fascinating stuff. Before we continue on, folks, next week, our guests are Hannah Harvey on Monday talking about the importance of storytelling in our lives. Richard Spence is going to be here talking about secret societies. That's going to be an interesting one as well. John Breckenridge, former CIA, he worked on technical gadgets. And then on Thursday, Dr. Reba and Obesity and Children will be here next Thursday, Monday through Friday, live at 12 p.m. Pacific time. Dr. Young, um, we covered a lot of territory already. That's <laughs> amazing. But in regards to oxytocin, we, we talked about how fast it can hit, if it does hit. Um, in regards to friends, like um, you have male bonding friends, uh, college, uh, sports teams, in that case, can people then develop a social bond with oxytocin in that case? Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's the case. Uh, so not only friends, but like in the military, for example, the individual members of a, of a unit become very highly bonded. And then actually when they come home from that and they're separated, they actually experience this kind of like a grieving behavior being away from their partner that may be related to this withdrawal from oxytocin. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that basically any kind of bonding like that involves this, this oxytocin. It's not just romantic bonding, but it is uh, bonding with your group. And, and actually interesting, since you mentioned the sports teams, uh, when, if you give people intranasal oxytocin, uh, they will show altruistic behavior, giving, you know, but only to members that they believe that are part of their group. They will be more defensive to people that are outside of that group. And you can, in the laboratory, sort of manipulate what that group is. You can say you're all in the same football team. And then oxytocin would make you more aggressive to those that are not on your team. Uh, you can make it political party, a religion, or whatever kind of group you want to make it. So it's sort of a, there's an in-group, out-group effect, uh, which, is, which is kind of interesting. Well, that's really fascinating, yeah, because I can have a lot of... Uh... I guess the first thing I'm thinking of is treatments. Is it possible? Are they even looking at treatments? I can just see this huge spray being released into the prison system, but I'm not sure how effective that would be. But uh, are they doing any kind of treatments with oxytocin? Oh, yeah. So uh, this is really important, actually. This is why I do the work that I do, because as I mentioned, it increases the, the salience of social stimuli. It makes your brain pay attention to social cues. This is actually something that would be very useful in autism. Individuals with autism, you know, that makes up about one in 68 individuals. Uh, they, uh, their brain doesn't perceive social cues like the rest of us do. And therefore, we, they have difficulty navigating the social world. And so there's some good evidence that uh, intranasal oxytocin can heighten their ability to perceive social information and maybe can learn social skills and, and uh, how to navigate social situations better. So that's the current state of the research right now. We're still investigating how we can activate the oxytocin system, maybe in combined with behavioral therapies to improve social functioning in the real world. So I think that, that you know, this little molecule that helps mothers bond with their babies, that helps us fall in love with our partners and our pets, uh, may actually be useful in helping people with autism navigate the social world. That would be fabulous. 
And I guess you can also maybe even try to work with people with antisocial personality disorders or psychopaths in that case too. Yeah, there's the, the, the number of people with those disorders are much less than autism. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I think in the future, once we get a handle, we, we're still trying to work on, on ways to deliver the drug and to manipulate the brain systems. But, uh, you know, that's, we're sort of in the infancy of that. And future research will allow us to, you know, expand uh, the people that we may be able to treat with this. What are the primary receptor sites for oxytocin? Well, different species have different receptor sites and, you know, humans, uh, we have receptors in the nucleus accumbens, which is this brain, this reward area and in the hippocampus and uh, other parts of the brain that project to our cortex that makes us pay attention to social information and visual cues. So, um, you know, when you mentioned hippocampus, does it help our memory then? Yeah, it probably helps us forming memories of other of other people. Uh, so it's not just general memories. So every most of the things that we think oxytocin does is really helping us process social information. So when we process social information, we want to do things with that, like remember that person, or to think that person is really great. You know, remembering it would be in the hippocampus. Thinking that person is great is in the nucleus accumbens. Maybe in the amygdala, you say that person, stay away from that person. Uh, so it, it just helps us like, okay, pay attention and uh, respond to that person in the right way. I guess in the last couple of minutes, folks, again, this is Dr. Larry Young, professor of psychiatry over at Emory University. The book is called The Chemistry Between Us, Love, Sex, and the Science of Attraction. If you love neuroscience, you're going to love the book. Uh, Dr. Young, let me ask you this question. I guess it kind of popped up in my head, nostalgia. I see nostalgia a lot, especially in today's world, Christmas time, people start looking back. But it's funny because I remember I look at these posts sometimes on Instagram and things of that nature. And I'll see a picture of uh, Sophia Loren or uh, a picture of a Bond girl from the 1960s. And people can connect with these individuals who remember that. Does nostalgia in, in that kind of way also create a bond if you developed a bond with those individuals 30, 40 years ago? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I don't know about how oxytocin plays in that role, but in terms of the neural circuits, you know, you form a memory and association of that individual with something pleasurable, right? So uh, some individual that you uh, liked when you were younger. Um, and then, you know, you forget about that person. They go away. You think you should forget those, but there are populations in the brain, like probably in your hippocampus that uh, are like engrams. They represent that individual. And those in your younger years, their projections from those were probably hardwired to the, your nucleus accumbens, this reward area. So that 30, 40 years later, you see that person again, and suddenly for some reason, they're inherently rewarding. Um, so it's, it's, it is these neural connections that are laid down early in life that sort of latent, they stay there until something brings them back up and they're, wow, not only do I remember this person, but I feel a certain emotion about that person. Yeah, it's really amazing. I know I get, I get a dopamine head just looking. It was, oh, Sophia Loren, boom. <laughs> so, so bizarre. Um, now, I guess our last question towards the end here. Uh, what do you see on the horizon in regards to oxytocin research? Where are we heading now? I know you talked a little bit about treatment, but what else are you looking? Yeah, I think in terms of treatment, I think that uh, we're looking towards developing drugs that can maybe spark our own oxytocin release because our oxytocin neurons go to lots of parts of our brain. And it would be really great if we could uh, have a drug that in a specific context, 
could cause those neurons to really light up like a Christmas tree, like I was mentioning earlier with social touch. But if you could pharmacologically do that so that they could be released under certain social, uh, situations, you could really improve psychiatric treatment for disorders. And again, that's really why we do this work is we want to you know, benefit mankind somehow in this, uh, through this knowledge. And I think that that's really going to be uh, the future. It's not going to be, you know, creating a potion that someone could slip in someone's drink and at a bar and cause them to fall in love with them. You know, that's, that's not ethical, but it could, maybe it's possible, but we shouldn't do that. Uh, but. Yeah, that reminds me of that, uh, what was that movie with the perfume guy, remember? I don't know if you ever saw that, that he was creating these perfumes that forced people to fall in love with him of some sort. Yeah. I don't know if it was oxytocin or not in that. I guess that, that does bring me to one more question, if you don't mind. Um, is there a possibility of having too much oxytocin? Well, I'm not sure about that, but there is a disorder called Williams syndrome where uh, the young, usually this is in uh, young females and uh, they tend to be trusting of everyone. They go up to everyone and just talk and talk and talk. And uh, it's like even perfect strangers. And uh, this has been associated with uh, pathologically elevated levels of oxytocin. We don't know that that is the cause but uh, of this uh, unusual behavior, but that is something that you can imagine that if, you know, if someone's just too quickly to bond with someone, even a stranger, that's not appropriate and it's not healthy and it's not a good behavior to do. So, um, you know, maybe there are disorders where that happens and creates uh, a behavior that's not, not a good thing. We know that the body's always looking for balance and homeostasis and too much dopamine, no good. Too little dopamine, no good. Exactly. <laughs> so, There's always a balance. Exactly. Very much. Very, very good stuff. Again, folks, if you have any questions for Dr. Larry Young on attraction, science, love, make sure you send us the questions. You can get his book on Amazon.com. The Chemistry Between Us, Love, Sex, and the Science of Attraction. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking to a paramedic about the life of a paramedic during this time. It's going to be a fascinating discussion. He's also got some great survival tips as well. He'll be talking to us about that and the importance of knowing CPR and first aid. Even if you're not a paramedic, not a first responder, it could save your life or somebody else's. So I think it's going to be a great discussion on that. Dr. Young, I can't thank you enough for this. It was a great discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Again, folks, catch us tomorrow, 12 o'clock live, every Monday through Friday, 12 o'clock p.m., 12 o'clock p.m. Pacific.